Hello and welcome to the Verity Podcast for Saturday, February 3rd, 2024. We're the only podcast that's separating the fact from the narrative spin. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Eric Steiner. Let's take a look at today's top stories. The U.S. launches retaliatory strikes against Iran-linked targets in Syria and Iraq. A former software engineer is sentenced to 40 years for the largest CIA leak ever. The Ukrainian military chief speaks out amid firing speculation. Israel's defense minister states Israeli forces will push into Rafah. A deadly gas explosion strikes Nairobi, Kenya, injuring over 300. The GOP-led House Judiciary Committee subpoenas Fulton County, Georgia DA Fannie Willis. South Dakota Governor Nome considers deploying razor wire and personnel to Texas. The U.S. economy reportedly added 353,000 new jobs in January. The World Health Organization predicts cancer rates will soar 77% by 2050. And Formula One driver Lewis Hamilton will join Ferrari in 2025. The U.S. launches retaliatory strikes against Iran-linked targets in Syria and Iraq. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Al Jazeera, Guardian, and CBS. The U.S. on Friday launched strikes in Syria and Iraq against Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps, Quds Force, and related militias in response to Sunday's drone attack that killed three American service members at a U.S. base in Jordan. The strikes were reportedly aimed at 85 targets. Sunday's drone strike was claimed by the Islamic Resistance, an umbrella organization made up of pro-Iranian armed factions in Iraq. Iran, however, has denied any association with the attack. Sunday's attack on a little-known U.S. facility called Tower 22 was the first direct one on an American installation by groups in the Middle East since the Israel-Hamas conflict began on October 7th. The retaliatory strikes on Syria and Iraq, which had been pre-planned and confirmed by U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin on Thursday, come as Washington faces mounting pressure from some Republicans to respond to last week's strike. In a statement released Friday, Biden said, quote, Our response began today. It will continue at times and places of our choosing. Meanwhile, Kataib Hezbollah, an Iran-backed militia part of the Islamic resistance, reportedly responsible for the drone attack, suspended all operations against U.S. forces earlier this week. Austin responded by saying, quote, Actions are everything. Thank you, Eric, for the update on the situation in the Middle East. We've got a few spins to begin our narratives today beginning with the Republican narrative provided by The Hill. Iran is apparently calling the shots here. It hasn't faced the consequences of attacking the U.S. and is unlikely to. That is a way too predictable and tired approach by U.S. President Joe Biden, proving again that his bite is as feeble as his bark. Counter that with a Democratic narrative coming from Newsweek. Faced with the prospect of an all-out war in the Middle East, Biden is taking a practical approach to U.S. retaliation. A direct strike on Iran will guarantee an escalation in the conflict, which, for all practical purposes, would be unsustainable. Pinpointed surgical strikes that do maximum damage to the rogue nation's strategic tentacles are what the U.S. must aim for. The spin's going to continue with a pro-Iran narrative, and that's provided by Press TV. Though the Western media may portray Iran as a rogue state acting belligerently, In reality, U.S. foreign policy is the primary driver of violence and instability in the Middle East. 
by occupying countries in the region like Iraq and Syria while ruthlessly supporting Israel's brutal campaign against Palestinians in Gaza, the U.S. has directly thrown fuel on the fire of regional tensions. Finally, the nerds from Metaculus say there's a 50% chance of Iran possessing a nuclear bomb by 2030. The man behind the largest CIA data leak has been sentenced to 40 years. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, CBS, The Hacker News, United States Department of Justice, and Court Listener. Former CIA software engineer Joshua Schulte, who was responsible for the largest leak of documents in the agency's history, was sentenced to 40 years in prison on Thursday. Collectively known as Vault 7, Schulte leaked over 8,000 CIA documents to the whistleblowing site WikiLeaks in 2017, detailing the agency's trove of hacked tools used to penetrate phones, computers, and smart TVs. When the FBI raided his apartment the same year, they didn't find evidence that linked him to the disclosure. However, the FBI said it discovered the images of children being molested by adults on a server he created as a university student in 2009. Once evidence of the leak was discovered, Schulte was indicted on 13 charges, including disclosure of classified information, child pornography, and lying to FBI investigators in June of 2018. After a mistrial in 2020, Schulte was ultimately found guilty on eight charges relating to the release of the documents in July 2022. In September of 2023, he was found guilty on three counts of receiving, possessing, and transporting child pornography. In a letter to the judge prior to sentencing, Schulte's lawyers called for a shorter sentence and argued that the special administrative measures, a restrictive regime for national security defendants that limits social interaction and confines prisoners to their cells for 23 hours a day, imposed on him during his six years of pretrial detention, amounted to torture arguing this should be taken into consideration alongside the time he already spent in prison. Thank you, Adam, for presenting the facts. The first bit is a pro-establishment narrative coming from the official website of the U.S. Department of Justice. Schulte was placed in a position of trust by the U.S. government. Not only did he betray that trust by brazenly committing one of the most substantial cases of espionage this century, but he also continued his criminal behavior in prison, by attempting to leak further damaging documents in addition to accessing child pornography, federal investigators did an amazing job bringing this traitor to justice, and a 40-year prison sentence is an appropriate punishment. That's going to be countered with the establishment critical narrative provided by the Consortium News. The special administrative measures that Schulte is placed in, which will continue through his 40-year sentence, means he's held in solitary confinement in a cell the size of a parking space for 23 hours a day. He has no access to reading materials or entertainment and is allowed no visitors except his lawyers. While Schulte broke federal laws and nothing is excusing his possession of child pornography, that doesn't mean he should be tortured. This is revenge for him informing the American people of their government's unscrupulous activities. Finally, there's a nerd narrative coming from Metaculus. It says there's a 30% chance that the U.S. will drop below a 7 in the Democracy Index by 2040. What are we now? Just below Jamaica. Yeah, just below Jamaica. <laughs> <laughs> in our next story, a Ukrainian military commander speaks out as Zelensky considers firing him. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Bloomberg, CNN, 
Washington Post, The Kiev Independent, and You're Active. Ukraine's top military commander, General Valery Zaluzhny, published an opinion piece for CNN on Thursday calling for a new philosophy of training and warfare to deal with limited resources. This comes amid rumors that President Zelensky will fire Zaluzhny due to differences of opinion regarding military leadership. Zaluzhny further stated that the central driver of this war is the development of unmanned weapon systems, adding that while the mastery of such technologies is key, Ukraine must also reckon with its lack of personnel staffing in the military. The rift between Zelensky and its top general was exemplified last November when Zaluzhny publicly claimed the war was in a, quote, stalemate, which prompted Zelensky to criticize him. Zelensky, who wasn't referred to by name in Zaluzhny's article, has also denied the general's request for an additional 500,000 soldiers. The opinion piece also argued that Ukraine has been hamstrung by the imperfections of the regulatory framework and the partial monopolization of the defense industry, which he said leads to production bottlenecks that further deepen Ukraine's dependence on its allies for supplies. While Ukrainian media reported earlier this week that Zaluzhny would be fired, with CNN reporting yesterday that the dismissal could come at the end of the week, no official presidential decree has been made. Zaluzhny has served as the military's top commander since July of 2021. A senior official in Zelensky's office, however, recently said that Zelensky has not made a decision to fire Zaluzhny as of today, also asking the issue not to be politicized. Thanks for the facts on that story, Eric. We're going to start the spins with a narrative A provided by The Hill. The only reason General Zaluzhny could possibly be removed is his failed counteroffensive. However, there's likely no other military leader in the country who could have done a better job, and his military qualities far outweigh the negative, petty differences he has with Zelensky. Ukraine has developed an incredibly successful defensive position, one that has remained strong due to Zaluzhny's ability to boost soldiers' morale and continue to train new soldiers. Firing him would have no positive outcomes, but it could have negative ones. Narrative B comes from Semaphore. First and foremost, President Zelensky has made no decision yet regarding Zaluzhny's future in the military. However, there are multiple reasons for Zelensky to consider dismissing him, including his creation of a charitable foundation in 2022, which has been seen as the potential beginning of a political party to challenge the president. It's true that the majority of Ukrainians are against firing Zaluzhny, which is why Zelensky has taken a cautious approach. The nerds are going to chime in. They think that there's a 67% chance that Volodymyr Zelensky will be re-elected president in the next Ukrainian elections. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. According to the Israeli defense minister, the Israeli forces will push into Rafah following their operation in Khan Yunus. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, New York Times, The Times of Israel, Guardian, Jerusalem Post, and MSN. Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant said on Thursday that Israeli forces would push into Rafah, which straddles the border between Egypt and the Gaza Strip, after they have completed their primary operations in the neighboring Khan Yunus. The UN estimates that more than 1.4 million Palestinians, over half of Gaza's population, have been quote-unquote crammed into Rafah. Though Israeli intentions are still unclear, Gallant's comments have raised concern as Rafah is one of the primary areas in which Palestinians displaced by the fighting have fled. Hunger and disease have rapidly spread as resources dwindle, with a UN official calling Rafah, quote, a pressure cooker of despair. 
Gallant, while speaking with Israeli soldiers in the north of the country, said that any temporary truce between Israel and Hamas would not apply to the Lebanese border, where Israel and Hezbollah have been exchanging fire since the war began. He added that either through military or diplomatic means, displaced Israelis must be able to return to the north. International media outlets have reported this week that Israel and Hamas have made some progress in reaching another agreement that would see the phased release of Israeli hostages held in Gaza and an extended pause in hostilities. The details of the proposed agreement and the progress of negotiations have been unclear, though Hamas reportedly received the proposal positively, per a Qatari official. In contrast, Israeli media have been generally more skeptical of the deal, reporting on Friday that a group of unnamed Israeli ministers said that no plan for a hostage deal has been presented to the governing cabinet. These outlets suggested that a deal isn't coming soon, if ever. Gaza's health ministry reports that the conflict has killed over 27,000 people in the Gaza Strip, the majority of whom were women and children. The war has also created a rapidly deteriorating humanitarian situation. The official Israeli death toll on October 7th stands at 1,200 people, and there are still over 100 hostages being held in the Gaza Strip. Adam, thank you for the facts. We have a round of spins. The first one is a pro-establishment narrative coming from Fox News. Israel's war against Hamas is surely just, given the atrocities the group committed during its October 7th attack. However, Israel must take into account the innocent civilians in Gaza who are trapped between Israel's military machine and Hamas's terrorist fighters. Humanitarian aid entering the Strip must be significantly increased, while heavy fighting, especially the airstrikes, must be reduced. Israel risks pushing Palestinians into Hamas's hands if it does not work to ensure the safety of civilians. The Jerusalem Post is going to counter that with a pro-Israel narrative. Though this has been a tragic war, Israel must eliminate Hamas and restore deterrence with Iran and its proxy Hezbollah. Hamas's military capabilities and infrastructure must be eliminated to ensure Israel's security. To eliminate this capacity for terror, Israel has been forced to use blunt tools to rout Hamas forces, as they are so deeply dug into Gaza's civil infrastructure. The international community consistently parrots Hamas's propaganda, as Israel worked from the get-go to deliver aid to Gaza and find a solution to end this war. The round of spins continues with a pro-Palestine narrative. It's coming from Al Jazeera. Israel continues to demonstrate that its war is not against Hamas, but against the Palestinian people as a whole. The humanitarian situation in Gaza is already far beyond catastrophic, as over one million Palestinians barely survive in dense and muddy tent camps while battling famine and disease. If Israel were to push into Rafah, as it did Gaza City and Khan Yunis, the consequences would be absolutely dire. Though the U.S., Israel's biggest ally, wants to minimize the war's intensity, it must instead exert more pressure to end the war completely. The nerds are going to wrap up this round of spins with a narrative that says that there's a 10% chance that Hamas will have de facto power in the Gaza Strip on January 1st, 2025. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Tragic news coming from Kenya as a deadly Nairobi gas explosion injures nearly 300. The facts are all agreed on by BBC News, Le Monde, Nation, CNN, The Standard, and The Star. A truck carrying gas cylinders exploded in a parking lot located within a residential area of Nairobi, Kenya, on Thursday night, 
killing at least three people, including a child, and causing almost 300 injuries. Several houses, commercial properties, and vehicles were damaged as the blast ignited a huge fireball that spread widely in the southeast Embakasi district. Firefighters reportedly managed to extinguish the blaze by around 9 a.m. local time on Friday. Shopkeepers and businesses in the area reportedly called the garage owner by 9 p.m. on Thursday to warn about a hissing noise suspected to be gas leaking from a truck. Emergency calls to the police were allegedly responded to only after the explosion had already taken place. Kenya's Energy and Petroleum Regulation Authority confirmed that the incident took place at an unlicensed cooking gas filling plant. The facility was located in an area where the watchdog denied construction permits for a liquefied petroleum gas or LPG storage and filling plant three times last year. The authority noted that the applications received in March, June, and July were rejected for failing to provide a qualitative risk assessment, which was needed due to the high population density around the proposed site. Meanwhile, Containers Limited, a company that some media reports had linked to the gas explosion, dismissed any allegations by stating that it had relocated its operations to Nairobi Gate Industrial Park in the Northlands area. Eric, thank you for the facts regarding that tragic story. We're going to start our spins with a narrative A provided by DW.com. The rules and regulations make it obvious that it's inappropriate to run a gas storage and filling business near a residential area. Running the operation was a crime, as was allowing it to operate in the first place. The authorities knew of the illegal operation but did nothing to stop it. Rumors are swirling about local officials being bribed for violating building codes and regulations. Corruption and negligence could very well have helped to create this horrible tragedy. Narrative B comes from TRT Africa. Those responsible for this disaster will be held accountable. Last year, the owner of the illegal LPG refilling and storage site where the blast occurred, as well as some of his customers, had already been convicted and sentenced. An investigation needs to be conducted before jumping to conclusions. But Kenya has robust systems in place to probe disasters like this and prosecute as appropriate. And the Metaculous Prediction community is going to chime in with a relevant statistic stating that there's an 11% chance that Kenya will experience a civil war before 2036. Nailed it. The House GOP subpoenas District Attorney Fannie Willis. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Fox News, CBS, The Independent, Associated Press, and NBC. The House Judiciary Committee has subpoenaed Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis, requesting documents related to her use of federal funds. Willis, who is leading an election subversion case against former President Donald Trump, has come under fire from Judiciary Chair Jim Jordan, the Republican from Ohio, as part of a broader investigation. Jordan's request comes amid allegations that Willis used part of a 488,000 federal grant allocated for at-risk youths for, quote, frivolous, unrelated spending. Willis is also accused of firing a whistleblower who levied allegations of Willis's misuse of federal funding. The subpoena requires Willis to provide the requested documents to the committee by February 23rd. Willis's office hasn't complied with three previous requests for documents. Willis denied the allegations on Friday, claiming that they were brought forward by an employee who was, quote, terminated for cause. Meanwhile, Willis revealed in a court filing Friday that she has been in a, quote, personal relationship with Nathan Wade, the special prosecutor she hired for the Trump case. 
Willis and Wade have rejected calls for them to recuse themselves from the case, saying that they have no conflicts of interest. The court filing follows accusations from Trump co-defendant Michael Roman that the pair have engaged in an inappropriate affair and that Willis has, quote, benefited financially from Wade's appointment. Willis and Wade will testify on February 15th as part of a subpoena brought by Roman. Adam, thank you for the facts. The first spin is a pro-Trump narrative coming from PJ Media. Fannie Willis continues to discredit herself and show that she cannot be trusted to lead the investigation into Trump. Her attempts to dodge congressional requests for documents will likely come to an end with the most recent subpoena. From strong evidence showing she misused federal funds to Willis's secret relationship with her hand-picked prosecutor, there's no doubt the sham investigation into the former president must come to an end. The anti-Trump narratives brought to us by MSNBC. Republicans have been running cover for Trump by attacking Willis ever since she first announced her lawsuit against the former president. Despite seeming serious, these latest accusations are part of the Republicans' clear vendetta against Willis and will only see the GOP continue to disgrace itself in the defense of Trump while the district attorney rises above the clown show. The South Dakota governor is considering sending razor wire and personnel to Texas. The facts are agreed upon by the Washington Examiner, Associated Press, Fox News, Argus Leader, South Dakota Searchlight, and Vice. South Dakota Republican Governor Kristi Noem stated in a joint session of the state's legislature that her administration is mulling sending razor wire and security personnel to bolster Texas's security efforts to curb immigration at the U.S.-Mexico border amid what she characterized as an invasion of America. She alleged that Mexican drug cartels are waging war against the U.S. and have perpetrated violence in all states, further noting that she will support the Oglala Sioux Tribe in a lawsuit against the federal government to demand more law enforcement support on the Pine Ridge Reservation due to mounting crime. Following her speech, South Dakota State House and Senate adopted a resolution to affirm support for defending the border, though some South Dakota Democrats pointed out that this is a federal issue. Noam said in a press conference on Thursday that the joint session was called partly to inform lawmakers that Texas may request additional help from its National Guard. Noam referenced that other states have already committed to deploying their National Guard troops to support Texas. South Dakota has sent its National Guard troops to help Texas secure the southern border three times since 2021, including one in response to a federal request, with the Mount Rushmore state spending at least $1.3 million to pay for these deployments. Texas has no formal obligation to reimburse border support costs, although potential reimbursement mechanisms exist, such as the Interstate Emergency Management Assistance Compact. This comes as Donald Trump last week urged all willing states to deploy their National Guard forces to help Texas, quote, prevent the entry of illegals amid a mounting border standoff between Governor Abbott and the Biden administration over border enforcement. Thanks, Eric. The spin's going to start with the Republican narrative provided by Newsmax. While Biden and the Democrats seek to open the southern border, Republican governors like Kristi Noem are standing with Texas against a literal invasion. Not only does an open border undermine American sovereignty, but it also invites and incentivizes drug cartels to continue bringing fentanyl into the U.S., as well as trafficking children and preying on people's desperation. South Dakota has an obligation to protect its citizens as the border crisis has impacted every state in the union. We counter that with a Democratic narrative coming from SiouxLandProud.com. 
Christy Nome is playing politics with her latest border stunt, and now she is using the plight of the Oglala Sioux tribe as a political weapon to increase her standing on the national stage. She only seems to care about Native American tribes when it's politically expedient, trying to appeal to the MAGA base with her harsh rhetoric on the border. Moreover, her claim that there's a local gang called the Ghost Dancers that is affiliated with cartel members in Pine Ridge is nothing but an insult to the tribe's traditions. Her disingenuous rhetoric is a dangerous game, pitting some red states against the federal government. There's also a cynical narrative spin attached to this story. It's been crafted by the Pew Research Center. The majority of Americans, both Republicans and Democrats, feel that immigrants fill jobs that most American citizens will not take. Despite the polarizing political rhetoric, America's deindustrialized economic system depends on cheap immigrant labor to function. This is not acknowledged enough in political discourse on either side when discussing potential solutions. Finally, the nerds from Metaculus say there's a 20% chance that Christy Nome will be the 2024 Republican nominee for vice president. A report that came out today says that the U.S. has added 353,000 jobs in January. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post, New York Post, and CNN. The U.S. Department of Labor reported on Friday that the country added 353,000 jobs last month, much higher than the expected 185,000. The report also showed the unemployment rate remaining unchanged at 3.7 percent, compared to the estimated jump to 3.8 percent. Average hourly wages also increased by 0.6 percent from December and by 4.5 percent year over year. The job growth included 74,000 jobs in professional and business services and 70,000 jobs in healthcare, though mining and logging saw a decrease in workers. Meanwhile, the retail industry, particularly in general merchandise, added 44,000 jobs. Manufacturing added 23,000 jobs, and the number of government jobs increased by 36,000, mostly in the federal and local levels. Despite the report, and as the last inflation report in December saw the rate of prices rise 3.4%, the Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell said that he doesn't think the committee will reach a level of confidence by their next meeting in March, though he said it's to be seen. The unemployment rate has also remained at 4% for 24 months straight now, the longest stretch since it hit 27 months in a row in 1967. A recent CNN poll showed positive consumer sentiment rose 13% last month, though 55% of Americans still believe President Joe Biden's policies have worsened the economy. Adam, thank you for presenting the facts. The New York Times is going to give us our first spin. It's a democratic narrative. Not only has the U.S. been adding jobs, but it's remained at the Fed's goal of 2% inflation for six months now and seen a very respectable gross domestic product jump of 3.3% at the end of last year. The unfortunate reality of today's America is GOP-led hyperpartisanship, which means that despite every economic figure trending in a positive direction, Republicans are going to ignore this tremendous news and mislead their voters ahead of the 2024 election. However, as more Americans begin to feel these positive trends, the lies won't work as well going forward. The Republicans are going to have their say and town hall's going to say it for them. If this jobs added report was so positive, why did both the labor force participation and unemployment rates remain unchanged? 
The report also hasn't counted the thousands of recently announced layoffs by companies including Google, Amazon, BlackRock, and UPS, and claims that real wages went up have been regarded baseless as hours worked have gone down. The only positive news is that the Fed might lower interest rates, another Biden-appointed government body that chose to suffocate the economy as an official policy. And the nerds from Metaculus are giving us a nerd narrative for this story, saying there's a 37% chance that the U.S. will enter a recession before 2025. The World Health Organization predicts cancer cases to rise 77% by the year 2050. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, CBS, the World Health Organization, Democracy Now! and The Guardian. According to the World Health Organization, or WHO's International Agency for Research on Cancer, new global cancer cases will reach 35 million in the year 2050, which would be a 77% increase compared to 2022. The agency argues that tobacco, alcohol, obesity, and air pollution will be among the key causes of this increase. The report, which includes surveys of 115 countries, also found that most countries don't have sufficient cancer health care in place to tackle this problem. It claimed that 39% of countries don't cover basic cancer management, and 28% don't cover palliative medicine. There are also disproportionate health benefit packages between rich and poor countries. For example, the WHO said, quote, lung cancer-related services were reportedly four to seven times more likely to be included in high-income countries compared to low-income ones. Wealthier countries were also four times more likely to cover radiation treatment and 12 times more likely to offer stem cell transplantation. Regarding differences in cancer rates between countries, the report said wealthier countries currently see 1 in 12 people diagnosed with breast cancer and 1 in 71 dying from it. In lower-income countries, the rate of diagnosis is 1 in 27, while the death rate is 1 in 48. The International Agency for Research on Cancer's figures show the global number of cases and deaths rose from 14.1 million and 8.2 million in 2012, respectively, to 20 million new cases and 9.7 million deaths 10 years later. The global health body projects that the number of cancer deaths in 2050 will rise to over 18 million. Thank you, Eric. The Narrative A spin on this story is brought to us by Harvard Gazette. The world needs to know about the causes of this startling increase in cancer diagnoses, particularly in those under 50. Studies in recent years have already shown that rates of numerous types of cancer have gone up dramatically over the last three decades, while drinking, smoking, obesity, and processed foods are clearly at fault. An increase in sleep deprivation among children could also be a cause. Penn Medicine has narrative B for this story. Although it's important to publicize cancer causes and try to limit them, it's also significant to note that cancer mortality has decreased significantly. In the U.S., cancer mortality rates have dropped by 33% since their peak in 1991. This positive trend will only progress thanks to advances in technology and medicine. Cancer won't go away, but the ability to defeat it is growing stronger. The Metaculous Prediction community think that there's a 50% chance that there will be a breakthrough in the treatment of hard-to-treat cancers by June of 2031. In our final story today, British driver Lewis Hamilton is planning to join Ferrari in 2025. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, CNN, BBC News, Forbes, Yahoo Sports, 
and Motorsports Magazine. Formula One star Lewis Hamilton is set to leave Mercedes for Ferrari on a multi-year contract after the 2024 season, the two motorsport teams confirmed on Thursday. Though describing his decision to leave Mercedes as, quote, one of the hardest of his life, Hamilton said it was the right time to take on a new challenge. He will join Charles Leclerc at Ferrari, replacing Spanish driver Carlos Sainz. This comes as the 39-year Brit icon, who dominated the sport from 2014 to 2020, reportedly activated a release option in a new two-year contract he signed with Mercedes last August, which would prolong his tenure with the team to 13 years. Seven-time world champion Hamilton is the most successful F1 driver with 103 wins, 12 more than the also seven-time world champion Michael Schumacher who failed to win a race in the past two seasons. Meanwhile, Ferrari is the longest-running and most decorated F1 team with a record 16 constructor titles, the last one in 2008, when then-McLaren's Hamilton defeated Ferrari's Felipe Mass to win his first Drivers' Championship. Though the driver lineup is set to remain unchanged from 2023 to 2024 for the first time ever, more changes in the grid are expected for the 2025 season, as several contracts are set to expire at the end of this year. Adam, thank you for the facts. The first spin is narrative A coming from Formula One. Hamilton is at the twilight of his career, and naturally, he couldn't ignore the lure of Ferrari, Formula One's most successful team by far in history. Having lost three back-to-back championships, a move to Ferrari could reignite his challenge for the record eighth title which he had no real chance of winning at Mercedes. The narrative B is provided by Vogue. Despite his poor run of late, Hamilton remains the biggest, most successful driver in F1. While despite signing all-time greats like Fernando Alonso, Ferrari hasn't won a driver's championship in the last 15 years. The prestigious name in the sport needed F1's most decorated champion to end its drought, rather than the other way around. Narrative C coming from ESPN. Hamilton's groundbreaking decision, less than a month from the start of the 2024 F1 season, not only deals a huge blow to Mercedes and leaves a gaping hole in its driver lineup for 2025, but it will likely trigger changes to the other F1 team's lineups. The move is ill-timed and doesn't guarantee success, considering Red Bull has dominated the sport over the past two seasons. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Saturday, February 3rd, 2024. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all the articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Find out more at Verity.news and download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast.